Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is McLean Deemer. McLean is a video game composer based in Los Angeles, who I actually met when he was a sound designer back at ArenaNet working on Guild Wars 2. Though he started out as a sound designer, he eventually ended up becoming a composer for the game and is still to this day working on expansions for Guild Wars 2. McLean recently finished working on the Guild Wars 2 expansion End of Dragons, which features an incredibly authentic suite of Korean music that he researched deeply to get the tone and authenticity just right. McLean also recently created music for the game Salt and Sacrifice, the sequel to the game Salt and Sanctuary. And in this episode, we dive into how he transitioned from sound design to composition, how he did incredibly intensive research for the music for End of Dragons to ensure he was being respectful to traditional Korean music, how he recommends people new to the music and sound world to break into the game and film audio scenes, and much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with McLean Deemer. All right, so I want to mention how we first met, which I think was like a perfect example of how the game industry works, because I was visiting ArenaNet when you worked there full time. It was like 2012 or 2013. Yeah. And I came in to visit Drew Cady, who was like the lead sound designer there at the time. I was just hanging out with him. He was being really nice, giving me a tour. And you just popped your head into his room, just like, hey, I'm McLean. What's up? <laughs> and now we're friends. That's yeah. such a perfect example of like how this industry works and how networking works and that sort of stuff. So I'm curious, what sorts of mindsets, broadly speaking, do you have when it comes to networking in this field? Because a lot of people either overcomplicate it or don't do enough of it or somewhere in between. Yeah, great question. So first of all, you're an easy person to be friends with. And I encourage anyone who sees you out and about, it is that easy. You just say hi and introduce yourself. And then when you see them again, you say, hey, it's great to see you again. Or reintroduce yourself. Take, sometimes it takes two or three times. In terms of my approach, you know, it's been a journey for me. I, I'm not a naturally outgoing person, which I think a lot of people are surprised to learn if they meet me now. But if they met me any time between when I was born and let's say 27, maybe 26, they would sort of see a brooding in my own head. Like I have a naturally angry face if anybody's watching <laughs> this on video. And I just like, I like to kind of live in my own head. So if I'm just kind of being quiet in a corner, it just looks like I'm so pissed off. I had so many people over the years come to me after I've known them for forever. And they said, man, when I first met you, I thought you were, you were an asshole. And then now, of course, I know that that's not the case. And it, it, it took that happening multiple times to realize that was the impression I gave off. Meanwhile, I was thinking in social situations that I was just deathly afraid of talking to people and afraid of being judged and afraid of being scoffed at for being like, who are you, you dummy? You know, I was such a painfully shy child that that kind of just wove its way into my psyche. What helped me undo it was, this is sort of before I got into the game industry, but you know, I started my career out of college trying to be a rock star. And it's good practice, I think, if you let it be in terms of socializing, right? Because you get up on stage, that part I loved, that was like a way to just feel completely unshackled. 
and maybe that was the start of me feeling like confident in myself and and that I could be myself in front of other people. But then after the show, you got to go out and talk to those fans. You got to sell t-shirts and the time you have to sell CDs and uh, they, they want to engage with you. And so they're intimidated by you. Like rather than me being in a situation being everybody's going to judge me, they sort of put you on this pedestal, which, which I think is unwarranted in most people's cases, including my own. But you know, it became a muscle that I had started to exercise and a switch that I could flip on and say, okay, now I'm going to throw the charm on and talk to these people. But, but then what I realized was that I liked it. I, I really liked meeting new people, talking to them. I was grateful that they were there, that they'd spent money to see what I do or what I was doing as part of a group, a very humbling experience. That was kind of when I started to get better at meeting new people and being genuinely interested. And I think that's the key to networking is not to say, Hey, I'm going to meet somebody and I'm going to try to poke them for what they can do for me. I think the only way to do it is to approach new people with genuine excitement over meeting new people. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt and let them prove to me whether or not, you know, it's worth me spending any more time talking to them. But I like to start with a blank slate and show up with some kind of genuine excitement with the intention that we'll at least become friends in some sense. It, maybe it's professional friends or maybe it's personal friends, which are two different things. But I think there has to be some, even the loosest bond of friendship with people, even if it's a totally professional relationship. So that's become my approach to networking. And now it's easy, despite not coming naturally to me. You know, it's gotten a lot easier. Yeah. And it's a good explanation of how basically anything works. It sucks at first. Yeah, literally everything. Yeah, just everything is hard at first. And then you do it and do it and do it and do it over again and over again and reflect on your mistakes and say, well, next time I won't do that. And then all of a sudden it becomes second nature. So can you tell me about that equivalence in your early days of audio? Because music, sound design, all that sort of stuff, there's such a big barrier at first because, frankly, most people start off sucking. So I'm curious, what was that like? Because I know you're a guitarist, you're performing a lot. That was kind of your main thing. And eventually you got into sound design and composition. What was that kind of path like? What was your practice looking like? How did you know what, to, what areas to grow in? Yeah, again, it all just sort of happened very organically. And uh, with, I, I would say a vision for what I wanted to do, but moment to moment, you know, there wasn't much of a plan. It was more about just staying aware of what's going on at all times and knowing when to jump off this train onto another one. Before I got into it, you know, on a professional level, I was definitely interested in game audio right out of college, but I thought I should pursue this rock star dream because it's a young person's game. I got nothing to lose, so I might as well. And it's not like, oh, I was touring constantly for all of my 20s. I was touring for a lot of it, but I also had to have a job. And I had a bunch of crappy jobs. Like I worked at Trader Joe's for a while. I still have difficulty shopping at Trader Joe's because of the, the eight months that I worked there, which felt like a life sentence. Stuff like that. Stuff that menial jobs that that I thought if I have to say I'm going on tour for a month and they say, well, you won't have a job when you come back. I would say, okay, fine. I won't miss you. you know. And I was always kind of like still sort of just gently trying to plant seeds for a game industry job. This was in Boston. I also went to Berkeley, although I'm thinking about a decade ahead of you. At the time, there was a Boston game development scene that was kind of on the ascent. Unfortunately, it's been on the descent for the last probably 10 years or so. But at the time, it was really kind of happening. And um, I remember I found this a couple of years ago and listened to it and thought it was very painful. But I remember doing it. I, I applied for a job at Irrational Games. I think this was, I don't think Bioshock had come out yet. I think this was in the run up to Bioshock. And somehow I became aware of them through maybe a friend of a friend. And I had no demo material whatsoever. So I spent a weekend in my bedroom putting together this weird sort of radio play, 
like a three minute kind of, you know, it starts, I think with like, you sound like you're in a warehouse and then you hear an elevator ding in the distance and the doors open and then footsteps come up and I say, Oh, Hey, you know, and I I go through this whole thing about like, here's my skills as a sound designer. And it's so funny and it's not like it's bad, but it's not great, but it's, I guess it would show some promise. Unfortunately, they didn't hire me. Although in the years <laughs> since then, I've become friends with the person who was the audio director at the time. And I sent him that email one day and I was like, Gmail keeps everything right. So I've had this Gmail account for forever. And I, I sent him the email. I said, hey, man, why didn't you hire me? <laughs> and I sent him my <laughs> demos. Anyway, it's really funny. But that was my first attempt. And I think at that point, in terms of like learning how to do it, you know, part of it is just awareness, right? Like I, I was aware of what a sound designer was. Even at that point, I knew who Ben Burt was. I was just obsessed with behind the scenes stuff. I just got such a kick out of that. And I thought, wow, what a cool job that must be. You know, you see every once in a while, you would just get a snippet of somebody at a, in a Foley studio, just like on their hands and knees doing whatever jacket rustling or, you know, punching bodies and body fall sounds and stuff like that. And I thought, whoa, these are adults doing that. They li- They literally look like they're playing. So that seems like a really fun job. And that, you know, once you sort of understand that you have to create all that stuff, then that makes you listen to things differently. So I started listening to movies and TV shows differently, knowing that, oh, this is all fake, right? Like everything has been completely replaced. Dialogue, sound effects, it's all just like this carefully orchestrated behind the scenes thing that is meant to sound real, even if it's a heightened reality. I had no real formal background in it, but I thought, I think it's more important to just have an understanding that there's a certain workflow. And now, of course, it's easier than ever to discover this stuff. Back then, it was like you were lucky if a VHS tape had a five-minute featurette on any sort of behind-the-scenes stuff, let alone sound design, or like you're watching Entertainment Tonight, and they would show you a little segment about it. Now, of course, it's like super-duper easy. But uh, I always just sort of kept that in the back of my head. When I finally got the opportunity to do it, I'm grateful, right? So my first real job in the game industry was at harmonics music systems in boston right at the peak of the rock band fad and it was an interesting job because we were called composers slash sound designer and we didn't do any of those things you know (laughs) the main function of everybody the majority of people especially the ones that got hired at the same time i did was to just be you know on the assembly line cranking out charts for songs because they released new songs every single week and then like a couple times a month they'd release a full album and then once a year there was a big title update So it was a lot of work, but neither of which is creative in the sense of like composition or sound design, but it's, you sort of have to have a head for both of them. And then every once in a while, there would be a little opportunity to do something like a little trailer or some UI sound effects. The first piece of music I wrote was actually the tutorial song in the Beatles rock band. It's the thing that like teaches you how to play rock band. We had to write this like play school version of a Beatles song, you know, that would just sort of loop and say, this is the drums, you know? And it sounds okay. It sounds Beatlesy, but uh, that was the first sort of composition job I ever did at the gig, and, and maybe one of the last ones, honestly, because there just there was such a bottleneck of people trying to to learn there, and there was only a, so much work to go around. But it gave me a little bit of a taste, and I thought, oh well, I can do this, right? I, I have a, a little bit of a background doing recording production stuff on my own. I've had I had a computer rig and was doing stuff for a few years at that point. Had done my w- crappy sort of radio play <laughs> sound design demo. And yeah, it's just about, like we just said, it's it's about doing it over and over again. So just doing a little piece. I'm glad that nobody came to me and said, hey, here's a two-minute marketing trailer that's going to debut at E3. We need this done by the end of the week. It would have been a disaster. So getting those little opportunities when they came along, I think, was important. And then when I left Harmonix and moved to Seattle to start working at ArenaNet, that was purely as a sound designer. My first couple of years, they were just doing sound design. 
And it was amazing because, first of all, they put some trust in me. I think I had enough of a background and displayed some competency in the, the very basics. And again, they didn't hand me trailers to say, hey, here's the E3 trailer. Here's the Gamescom trailer. We need this done ASAP. It was stuff like opening doors or a trebuchet falling apart, you know, and just the very, very basic level of sound design, um, just figuring out how to build those, how to layer things, how to, you know, the sort of story you have to tell, even if it's a three second sound, you know, how are you going to tell the story of whatever's happening? And then you just have to crank assets out. I mean, you know, in an MMO, there's just so much stuff in any game, but especially big open world thing that's designed to be played for thousands of hours. You just got to crank stuff out. And then you learn tricks. So it's not like, hey, we have 500 sounds that need to be done in the next month. You're like, how I have to make 500 sounds? You're like, no, I have to make a couple dozen building blocks and figure out how to put them all together. You know, So a lot of this was sort of on the job training because I think there's probably programs out there that teach you about sound design and Foley and stuff. But my guess is that they're, they're fairly basic. And a lot of it is you just have to learn by doing and figuring out what works and, and realizing things like, you can't put five big sounds on each other and, and it'll make it sound bigger. No, it'll sound like a mess. So you got to sort of pick your battles, that kind of stuff, um, which I didn't learn. I mean, I was a couple of years into my career by the time I finally started learning that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's so interesting about your career is that you started off at Arena, especially, especially as a sound designer. That was your focus. But eventually you ended up transitioning into music. And I see so many composers in this field or any field, really, in film or in TV and stuff thinking, oh, I'm going to start as a sound designer and I then I'm going to be hired as the composer. It's not a super common thing. You're like one of the few people I've ever met who actually made that transition. So can you talk to that and how that happened? Absolutely. So I, I always say this when this kind of comes up is at that point, especially when I was at ArenaNet, I had given up on the idea of becoming a professional musician in any way, right? I had tried for most of my 20s to do this band thing, be an artist of some sort, which you have to, but it's it's like buying a lottery ticket. You know, there is a chance of winning, but it's it's not in your favor. And, you know, I'm glad now, especially that I didn't kind of stick with it, because even if you do succeed, there's no guarantee of longevity, right? Those odds are even slimmer. So I probably would have tried to come back and say, well, hey, this scoring thing is potentially interesting. My agent, can you give me some, uh, can you give me some gigs doing this? <laughs> so yeah, I had given up. I tried, didn't work out. I thought I got to figure out a way to utilize this skill set that I have and make a living doing it because I'm tired of working at Trader Joe's or working in an office and and just being on the verge of quitting at all times. And I was perfectly happy doing that. I mean, those first couple of years at ArenaNet were great. All my time at ArenaNet has been great. But those first couple of years where I thought, hey, I'm a sound designer for games. And, uh, you know, this is fun. I'm really enjoying this. And I could do this for the rest of my life and be totally happy. The transition to doing music, you know, it happened fairly organically. But it obviously, it was a very important moment in my life and career where after a couple of years of being there, they had a previous composer who'd worked on all of Guild Wars 1 and all the music for the launch of Guild Wars 2, and they decided to go in a different direction, start looking for some new people. And my boss at the time, James Ackley, who has since gone on to do other things in game audio, he knew that I was the sort of the most musical person on the team. I think everybody on the team had some degree of musical ability, which I think is not uncommon among game audio people or just audio people in general, because, you know, we're professional listeners in, in a sense. So it's like our ears are already sort of highly attuned to things that, that the average person is not and applying that skill set in one direction or the other. The, the Venn diagram crosses over a lot more than I think people realize. But I was doing things like the music implementation with the pre-existing music. And 
I wrote a couple things that shipped in the game when it first came out. I mean, they're like so minor, but I did write a couple pieces of music that shipped with the game for certain specific events and things like that. So he said, you know, hey, you're the, you're the music guy. Can you start looking for some people to take over the music, people who can reach out to and start a conversation about writing music for the game? And I, I did it in earnest. I sort of got two or three names deep on that list before I realized that this is opportunity knocking so unbelievably loud. And I have to at least ask them if I can do it. And if I don't, then I'm, I'm no worse off because I have this life and career that I'm, I'm really enjoying and I'm working on this game that I enjoy with a team of people that I enjoy working with. But this could be a moment, you know, this could be a moment for me. And so I asked uh, my boss if I could just try. And I had no demo reel. I had no piece of paper that said you have passed a film scoring course. <laughs> Truly nothing other than my belief in myself. I did have a music background, right? I went to Berkeley, so I have a formal music education, but nothing in the sort of film scoring realm or, or along the lines of like, you know, big grand fantasy orchestra stuff that, the, that Guild Wars is known for. But I made what I think was a, well, it was a compelling case because it worked. So I, I said, you know, <laughs> here are the advantages of hiring me. I know the game better than any hired gun off the street, which, you know, I'll have to get them up to speed. I know the tools that we use, which are all totally proprietary um, and a little bit crusty at this point, even more so now. I know the team, meaning the audio team really well. We work well together. And then I know the broader team at the studio, right? All these other people who make this game work. I just... I'm sort of primed and ready to go. So if you give me the opportunity to prove that I can do it, not saying, yes, okay, we're going to do the sight unseen, you're going to become the, the composer tomorrow. But if you, you know, maybe buy me some equipment, some software libraries that allow me to kind of practice this, I'll spend some time working up some music and then I'll send it, I'll give it to you and we'll see if it can sit side by side with what's already in the game. And if that feels good, then can I take over? And uh, he, you know, said, okay, let me talk to my boss, which was the head of the studio. He went for it. And, and that was what I did for you. So for a few months, you know, they bought me a new computer. They bought me a couple of sample libraries that I requested. And then it was, then it was on me, right? It was on me to, to prove that I was worthy of this shot. And so I spent, you know, it sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not because I was like single at the time and just kind of like, I was new to Seattle. I had friends, but I was happy to spend the extra time doing this. I was there every night till midnight. Uh, 10, 11, midnight. I was there every weekend, just like with a score book open and my software up and just trying to figure out, okay, I hear the music in the game. I know it's all virtual instruments. So I know it's possible. And then I'm listening to the recordings of these scores that I'm studying. And I need to somehow like figure out how to get in the middle of this and say, I have these amazing tools. I, I have everything I need in front of me. And then the music is up here. It's in my head. I can hear it. I just need to get the technical part out and figure out how to produce something that sounds good. And it took me a few months before I felt comfortable kind of playing anything for anybody. I should go back and open up those old sessions. I've still got them. I should see how bad they are. <laughs> but that first, um, that first piece of music that I played for them, which again, speaking of it being bad, I listen to it now and I think, yikes, you know, if I, I would not have hired me. It's good. The, mu the music is good. The essence of it, the execution of it is not both from an orchestration standpoint and from a produ production standpoint in terms of virtual instruments. But that sort of shows you that the quality of a piece of music can elevate you to, to a certain degree, past a certain point. And fortunately, we've had a chance to re record that piece live. So the original version is no longer in the game, so no nobody can hear it. <laughs> but yeah, it, it took me a while to kind of put that in front of them. And I think I think they weren't expecting it to be as good as it was, despite me thinking it's not that great. 
and that was it. I was kind of off to the races at that point. There's something hugely important to what you just said as you're like going there, spending weekends there, opening the scorebooks, looking at your software. I doubt there's any point during that whole moment where you thought, I know exactly what I'm doing and this is going great. Like that is not a thought process that a lot of composers have, especially when they're just tossed to the lions and told to do whatever, make us something, especially and you saw this probably as like a big break for you. Like, oh, here's an opportunity. What was going through your head and how did you deal with any thoughts of like, oh, God, I don't know what I'm doing, etc. Uh, it took years for me to, sh- to shake that really. And I still have those moments when I'm really deep in the work and just have a concept of what it should be at the start. And I'm not at the end, and I'm right in the middle, and it's so far away from what I want it to be. So I still have those moments, but I've been through the ringer enough to know that I'll get through it, right? And maybe even stumble on some inspiration along the way that points me in a new direction that I didn't even know I was going in. But back then, I definitely felt adrift, which is why it took months. And maybe, you know, in hindsight, learning how to orchestrate from never having done it to like putting something in the game, even if it's at an amateurish level, in my opinion, to do that in four or five months, which is about what it was. It's pretty crazy. And I couldn't have gotten there without the lifetime of experience and education that I had up to that point. So I'm not saying I I started this with a total inability to make music. But, you know, we talk about it all the time is imposter syndrome. It's it's very real. And there were some moments where I was like, can I do this at all? Am I going to have to go to my boss and say, hey, I give up. Thanks for buying me this computer and all this software library. But I think I'm just going to be a sound designer because I can't do it. And, and I just, I had so many of those moments where I'm like, I would look at a page of music in a score and I'd hear it and I'd be like, it sounds so simple. But I look at this and this, I was like, how do you sit down at a blank score page and, and write this? I, I couldn't figure it out. And I, I, I don't know. I still, every time I'm sort of addressing some new concept, I still kind of have those moments where I'm like, how do they figure this out? And sometimes even back then, it's just trial and error, right? But these guys had a that were writing this and mostly guys, let's be honest, you're Western European guys. They had the opportunity through the, their sort of patronage to, to try things. So they would sit down and write, write and write and write at their piano. They'd had all this kind of amazing education from, you know, their mentors, which is how knowledge had to get passed down back then. And then they put it in front of an orchestra and then they would make revisions. We, we never talk about that. Maybe they do in school, which is why you study this stuff in school, which I didn't do. So I had to, I had to kind of backfill it, but uh, you know, it, it always feels like it just springs forth from people's heads fully formed. And even for the greats, it doesn't, right? Unless you're Mozart and you're kind of preternaturally gifted. But those are the exceptions. You, you can't use them as a, as a bar to measure yourself against. So yeah, I, st- I still go through that a lot. And I think it's natural and I think it's, I think it's okay. And I think it's a sign that you're growing, right? And so that initial period before I started taking over the music in the game, and then those first couple of years, one of the most intense periods of creative growth in my entire life. And, you know, that was in my early thirties when that was happening. So it's like fairly late in relative terms to kind of go through such a dramatic sea change in your own skill set and the things that get you out of bed in the morning. Yeah, totally, totally. And like over time, has that imposter syndrome or whatever you want to call it, has that disappeared? Is it the same as it always was? Is it changed? How's that feeling now? I'm going to say only in the last couple of years have I felt a level of confidence in what I like to write and the execution of that. When I go back and listen to stuff I've done, do I say, you know, this is pretty good. And I can hear a voice kind of emerge. I no longer feel like I'm just trying to copy this for this piece and copy that for that piece. And um, I had a moment uh, recently, this only a week ago. So as of this recording, GDC was last week, right? And I gave a talk at it about the latest expansion for Guild Wars 
End of Dragons, which all should, you should all go buy or go listen to, at least on streaming platforms. And I gave a talk about it, and I, and I felt really good about that talk. I was telling people that, you know, for the first time in my life, I, I truly, I think, it's the first time I've completed the homework, like, well ahead of time, right? That I'm not up the night before, scrambling, and I felt so prepared because I really cared about what I was talking about, which was how to uh, approach an unfamiliar culture's music, right? In this case, the traditional music of Korea, how to weave it into what you're doing and avoid stereotypes and tropes that might be associated with, you know, quote unquote, exotic music, right? Just erase that word from your vocabulary and and come to it on its own terms and then figure out how to incorporate that into what you're already doing. So this was essentially two years of my life and I felt so passionate about it. And I've spent so much time studying it that it was just, it, it was a breeze for me to get up there and talk about it. And in the crowd was our friend Austin Wintry, a great guy and obviously an unbelievable composer. And, and I did his podcast afterwards, and he was sort of intentionally not talking about his reaction to my talk until the microphones were on. And then he spent the beginning of this podcast just telling me what he thought of the presentation, what he thought of the music, and how you know he thought it was pretty awesome, and, and I had done such a great job and all this stuff. And I was just flabbergasted. And this is something that he probably doesn't even know. Maybe he'll listen to this and he'll learn, or I should just probably have a conversation with him about it. But I've known Austin for for a while. You know, I've, I've been to a studio, and of course, I see him at events and things. We're about the same age. He's a little younger than me, but we're we're roughly the same age in relative terms, right? And and we're far enough along in our careers that I would say we're colleagues, for lack of a better term. But in my mind, I'm the kid brother, right? So after this moment happened, and it really shook me, and still I th- I'm, I think about it a lot. I was sort of putting the timeline together, right? And Journey came out in March of 2012. Guild Wars 2, the core game, came out in August of 2012. And my first piece of music for it went in the game in October of 2012. So six months separate Austin's amazing explosive moment, which wasn't his first game, but certainly the one that kind of launched him into the stratosphere that people still talk about, and rightfully so. So he had this amazing moment and Austin's name was on my list of composers to reach out to for Guild Wars because I love Journey so much. And, you know, we had a laugh about me not hiring him and (laughs) taking the job away from him. But, you know, six months later, I put my music into Guild Wars and it's the delta between that and Journey is about as great a gap as there can possibly be. And so for so many years, I thought he's the leading light of my sort of era of people writing, you know, coming up in the game industry and writing music for games. I could never catch up. And that was all 100% in my head, right? Austin is a very Mm -hmm. positive person. He's very optimistic and encouraging. And I I know that he didn't think that about me, but I thought that he thought that way about me about like, all right, you know, pat on the head, like, all right, junior, you know, come back when you're a little older. (laughs) And so to have that moment you know, there where he was saying these things, I thought, oh, okay, this is, this is nice. It's nice to be appreciated by your peers. I still don't think my music measures up to his, but I also know that we do different things. There's, and there's space for the two of us to coexist. Oh, and I I did want to mention, so I I was listening to your episode with uh, Jean Yves Mm -hmm. just this morning, and he said something amazing that I actually wrote down because this is, this basically (laughs) sums this point up. And he says, success is when people you admire say, well done. And in his case, he was talking about sitting down with Bruce Broughton, who's this, you know, if you don't know who he is, he's on the same level as the Jerry Goldsmith, the John Williams, you know, he, he maybe doesn't have the same level of name recognition that those, those guys have, but he's an unbelievable composer uh, and, and very intelligent person, very thoughtful, amazing musician, right? Like he really knows this stuff. And 
I don't know him personally, but I do, I've seen him talk at, at events and things, and, and I don't get the sense that he's the person that doles out compliments lightly. So, you know, for him to have that moment with Jean-Yves, I think is incredible. And and when he said that, it just crystallized what I had felt about Austin is, Austin is my Bruce Broughton, right? It's just like, he's somebody that I will always look to for inspiration. He'll always be ahead of me in the kind of race, if you want to consider it a race, just because he got there before me and his talent was immediately on display. But to think of him as, you know, okay, well, maybe the playing field is a little bit more level than I thought. And then especially being at this past GDC, like I, I turned 40 last year. And so now there's people in the industry who are truly half my age, right? And they're at such a formative stage of their career. I'm no longer coming up like I've done it. You know what I mean? I, this, this is how I make my living. I get to work on cool projects with cool people. And, and I'm a veteran. So people see me as a veteran. And I have to start seeing myself that way and start believing that I deserve to be here, you know? So it's, it was this past GDC was a very important kind of moment for me uh, in a lot of different ways. That's awesome. And how many years would you say it took to get from the point of you playing guitar on stage to being on a podcast with Austin and him singing your praises? Like, what is that timeline? Well, um, about 15 or so years, right? Like next year will be my 20th year of graduating from Berkeley. So I'm old, right? <laughs> It truly doesn't feel like that long ago. It's really difficult for me to believe it's been 20 years. I didn't get my first job in games until I was 27. And I remember that day so clearly getting that email and just running out of the office at the end of the day and feeling like Clark Kent, like ripping open his suit and turning into <laughs> Superman. I was like, now I get to be who I truly am, right? And then I didn't get my first opportunity to write music for games until I was 31. So at that point, I'd already been out of school for a decade. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's been a grind. It's been a grind. And it still is a grind. That's the other thing I try to tell people is that it doesn't stop when you achieve some measure of success. You still have to go out there and make friends with new people, search for new projects. The tier of project you get to work on might go up and up. And But I still feel like all of my best work is in front of me, despite having done this for so long. So I'm still hustling because I still have more exciting things I want to accomplish in my career, despite having done it for so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's the incredibly important thing you just said is like it took you, let's say, total of 20 years to get to this point, but even 10 years out of school to start getting those composition gigs and all that. And I'm meeting more and more composers, like you said, who are in their formative years, the 20s, like early, early, maybe they just graduated or are still in school or not even going to school. And they're dealing with lots of rejection. It's nonstop, right? Because there's, you know, there's only so many gigs for so many composers and they're getting told no nonstop. And it can be really soul sucking. It can be really like shattering to them to pick, oh, no, I must suck and I must suck forever. This is it for me forever. What do you tell people who are in that state? Well, yeah, I mean, I tell them that, that it's, it doesn't stop and that, you know, the only true piece of advice you can take away from my story, and I think anybody else's story that does this, is the key to making it is patience and persistence and getting lucky. But part of that is putting yourself in a situation where luck happens to you, right? So being aware of what's going on at all times, not being afraid to move on if it doesn't feel right, and, and knowing when to bet on yourself. That I think is really important. But yeah, patience and persistence. I mean, if you're getting rejected, at the very least, even at low levels, it means you're in the running, right? And you're going to get rejected a lot. Like, I get rejected all the time for stuff now. And I try not to resent anyone's success. If there's a project that I really, really wanted to work on that I didn't get that comes out, I, it's like, let it go. And just, I'll play it, I'll listen to it, and I'll, I'll appreciate for what it is. 
Uh, every once in a while, there'll be something that maybe secretly you would only tell your wife or your closest friends or your significant other. Man, I really wish I'd gotten that. But for the most part, I don't begrudge anyone their success. And if I get rejected, my technique of dealing with it now is the day that I get that email or phone call that says, hey, we man, we love your stuff. Thank you so much for submitting it, but we're going to go in a different direction. You know, you get that email, you get that phone call, you drown your sorrows in whatever way you need to responsibly <laughs> that day. It's like, I give myself to the end of that day to feel sorry for myself. And then the next day it's back to work, you know, find something positive to put your energy into, whether it's a personal project or another demo submission, or just say, okay, well, I'm who haven't I talked to in a while? Let me send out some emails and turn that negative energy into something positive. I think that's the only way to, to kind of healthily deal with it. And so the earlier you start that, the longer you'll stay in the game, right? Because you you will no longer associate the, this thing you love with negative emotions. Because I've had those moments too, where I've had to sort of been in a nosedive and had to pull myself out and say, I'm good. Like, does nobody want what I do? And then usually almost immediately, anytime I feel like Eeyore and just feel sorry for myself, a week later, a day later, sometimes later that day, something will happen where it'll just turn everything around and I'm saying, okay, it's like, stop, Hey man, stop feeling bad for yourself. Like you're lucky you get to do this. So just keep going, just like plow forward and don't stop. And eventually you'll get a point to a point where you can turn around and look at your successes rather than your failures. Yeah. And speaking of being in that state of, you know, plowing forward and keeping going, are there things that you specifically maybe obsess over musically or career wise that maybe nobody else does just specific McLean things that you're like, I love doing this and I will do this and I, I will keep poking at this. For me, example, it's negotiation. Like I'll read a negotiation book for funsies every single day if I could. It's just something I obsess over. But so what's your equivalent? Another great question, Akash. <laughs> I think, you know, if anybody has heard me talk, and I said this in my GDC talk, they'll know that that I despise writing combat music. So mm -hmm. I always avoid situations that like that's the majority of the gig. I'll do it. It's a necessary evil in games, but that's to me that's not where my strengths are. So you know, I'm always looking for opportunities to write. I say it's slow and sad and melodic. It's like that's just what comes out of me naturally. Defining this in the negative terms, I try to avoid anything that will pull me away from that mm. as much as possible. And then when I was younger, especially when I was doing sound design, I thought the end of the line of this career is going to be, I'm going to become an audio director. I'm going to have a team, you know, maybe I'll be at a big AAA studio, et cetera. And I really thought that was my trajectory for a long time. Now I don't want that at all, right? I, I don't even like being in a situation where I'm any kind of boss or director, like meetings are a necessary evil. Building a team <laughs> is very important, but for the music side of things, it's a little bit different than you know, being a director in-house at a company where you're just, you know, in higher level meetings with executives and things like that. I always want to be creating something. And so I will only put myself in situations where I feel like there, there, there'll be an extended period of time where I'm just doing purely creative work. Um, and I know that this is sort of, you know, it's, it's a commercial business. You have to work on projects that will pay you and sustain you and hopefully be successful and get people's attention and stuff. I'm not some starving artist who's sitting in a room just like making my art and hoping to be discovered. But if it pulls me away from the act of creating, then I'm not interested. And fortunately, you know, I've been able to kind of only do that, right? I'm very lucky that I've been able to kind of keep that momentum going for a decade and work with amazing people telling stories uh, in whatever genre or medium we get to tell them in. But that's kind of, I feel like I can pick and choose a little bit now, right? Where I, I only try to pitch myself for projects where I know this is going to be rewarding. 
And I'm grateful that Guild Wars was kind of the first one to give me the first big opportunity because it so meshes with what I like to do, right? Where uh, I love pretty music. I love catchy melodies and, and I love the sort of emotional side of writing music for that game. So, you know, it was kind of been a match made in heaven and, and I hope to kind of continue working on projects in that vein for the rest of my life. Awesome. Awesome. And now that, you know, you finished End of Dragons recently and you learned so much about Korean music and instruments and so, so, so much and listened to Ab McLean's other interviews and talks about that because it's incredible how deep he went. But what are you focused on learning now? Like a project's done. You've spent a whole lot of time learning. Now what do you do in between projects or working on other things? What do you focus on learning? I would say in between pretty much every project. Now, granted, the bulk of my work for the last decade, 80% of it has been Guild Wars. Not for lack of trying. Audio directors <laughs> out there, please hire me for other things. But that, you know, again, I'm very grateful to have had this opportunity to be able to do some of the things I've done. But in between each one, I like to let the dust settle a little bit. And then I like to go back and listen. You know, I, I don't really have a problem listening to my old stuff anymore. I'm not so embarrassed by it. And I don't, sometimes I listen to it and think it's pretty good. <laughs> but I like to just go back and make mental notes about what I'd want to work on, right? Whether it's working on my approach to harmony, right? Or my approach to orchestration and just pick a couple things that next time I'm going to try to experiment a little bit. And each project, at least for Guild Wars, has pushed that a little bit further. So when I listen to my original demos that are all virtual instruments, then the first batch of live recordings I did, and then the big expansions of which End of Dragons is the third one, I see a progression in each of those in terms of like, confidence in some of those core musical concepts so I'm, I'm always working on that just because it's so complex like even though people have figured out how to write for an orchestra for hundreds of years what's well, new to me you know i'm not hundreds of years old and i don't have you know 50 symphonies under my belt so i always want to find something that i can sort of get excited about the next time and it's like i can't wait till we get in the studio and get people to play this thing on uh on the end of dragons soundtrack i really I feel like I've got a couple of tricks up my sleeve and I, I know how to dial in a pretty sound with the orchestra, but I wanted to try some nasty stuff. And there's a whole side of the score that I haven't really talked about publicly because it's not the most exciting part, but there's all this electronic processing that we did and incorporating synthesizers and stuff. And, and that part's fun, just kind of finger painting and making a mess of things. But I, I wanted to try that with some orchestration. And I've been fairly textbook about a lot of stuff just because it's what works, works. You expect to hear certain things, but I wanted to try to make a mess. So there was a track that plays in an area that's kind of a, a junkyard. It's like a scrap yard and there's rival factions sort of fighting over it and stuff. And so I, I just wanted an ugly piece of music to play there. And uh, I, I just, it was one of those things where I just did everything wrong in terms of orchestration. I had all the low winds and strings and brass playing on this low note. And then some of them playing like a minor second, but like well below middle C. So if you know the physics of acoustic stuff, right, the wavelengths at those low frequencies are much larger. And so they fight, you know, if, if the notes are too close to each other and they create a very unpleasant effect. But if you want that effect, then you just take some low instruments and put them right next to each other. It was like, what did we have? It was a tuba and a, and a contrabassoon playing the lowest note upright bass but the upright bass it was half the section was tremolo bowing and the other half was like trilling a minor second and then we had a bassoon and a bass clarinet an octave above that bass note playing a minor seconds like starting an octave and then the minor second above that and then when we were in the studio the conductor who was also an amazing musician he had this amazing suggestion he, he asked the tuba player I, I can't remember his name we'll say his name was mike he goes mike do you have a, a mute for your for your tuba and it's like 
who on earth uses a tube of mute? Like <laughs> no one does that. And he kind of goes, uh, yeah, I think it's in my car. And so we stopped the session for a second. He ran out to his car. He came back with this giant mute that when he put it in his <laughs> tuba, looks like the R5 unit, the, the droid uh-huh. Uh-huh. that Luke buys at the very beginning of A New Hope that <laughs> the little motor pops out of his head. So he looks like an R5 unit, right? So with that trapezoid sort of head sticking out of his tuba. And like that was sort of the magic you know, salt and pepper sprinkled over the top. It was like that combination of everything just made this ungodly sound. And I was like, yes, that is it. That is the sound. And now I have, you know, a new kind of tool in my toolbox for the next time I want that ugly sound. Because when I was writing, I'm like, hope this works. It sounds okay with samples, but it's that's a different beast than when you get in the room. So anyway, those, those are the things I like to work on between projects, just because, like I said, I don't have the formal background doing this. And I don't think it's impossible to educate yourself. I think it's actually easier than it's ever been in the entirety of human history to educate yourself about pretty much anything, but it does take a little bit of work. And then with something like an orchestra, the final you know proof being in the pudding is when you get in the room with musicians, which not everybody gets the opportunity to do. So I have to take advantage of those situations. And in my sort of planning and writing period, plan to do something cool and unusual just to, just to see if it works. And so far, so good. Awesome. I love it. And uh, we're going to wrap up soon. So there's a question that I ask everybody near the end of each of these episodes. So you just listened to an episode today, so you probably know the question. But when you're first starting in this industry, and that could be when you're a guitarist, that could be when you were going to Berkeley, it could be any starting point you want to pick. How did you define success? And how has that changed over time? And what is that answer now? Yeah, for me, success has always been I just want to be happy with what I'm doing that day, right? And what makes me happiest more than anything in the world, other than my wife, who I love very much, and my cat, who I also love very much, (laughs) is just writing music. I just want to be left alone in a room to write music. And like I said, anything that pulled me away from that was I just had to excise that from my life. Um, And I've had to do that a lot over the years. And I think you have to keep your eyes on the prize, at least in my case. You know, you try not to burn any bridges with people, let's put it that way. But if something isn't working out, don't be afraid to let go. Right. So yeah, success is just, if it's a day that I can wake up and make music, then that's, that to me is success and pay the bills. Right. And like I said, it wasn't until fairly late in my twenties that I even got close to doing that. Um, then it was still another four or five years before I felt this isn't going to go away. Um, It's not going to be taken away from me. And now at this point, you know, I can solidly sort of pay the bills. So it's changed a little bit in the sense that I get to do what I want within those parameters, you know, my, my goal for the last four or five years has just been variety. I'm lucky enough to have a steady gig with Guild Wars, which is like winning the lottery. There's no guarantee that that'll go forward, but I feel like I've built up enough goodwill with the studio that we'll always have a relationship barring something dramatic happening. But now I get to pick and choose a little bit. And so success means I get to do a little bit of something different every day and keep my brain kind of fresh and not feel like I'm repeating myself. It's not so much about paying the bills, although that's always a concern because you start becoming successful. You're like, oh, now I can afford this piece of gear or this synthesizer or this plug-in library that I couldn't afford before. You know, I need bigger speakers. Oh, I should get a second (laughs) monitor, you know, all that kind of stuff. But in general, I'm a little bit less worried about that now. And I'm, I'm truly just looking to work on projects that are meaningful to me and that are meaningful for the people making them and be, and be a part of a team and be a part of something cool. And if I just exist at the level that I'm at currently for forever, you know, then I, I will be a success and I will achieve more than my wildest dreams as a kid and what most people who choose a creative field as their profession ever get to. So I'm lucky. Awesome. And last question, where can people find you? Plug anything you want to. 
Okay, well, I have the world's most Googleable name, maybe second to Jean-Yic. Uh, his might be a little <laughs> bit more unique than mine. But there's only one McLean Deemer out there, as far as I can tell. So McLeanDeemer.com, of course. I'm pretty active on Twitter. So at McLean Deemer. Instagram, I can't seem to find much traction there. I'm not sure why. I put a lot of work into posts, and then they'll get five likes. And then I think, why am I doing this? I'm Noah Kosh. You're, you're oh, the master. Oh, you. You're the master. <laughs> But uh, yeah, mostly Twitter. You can find me on Instagram if you want it, at McLean Deemer Music. And then I've got a couple cool things happening this year. So uh, in the spring, my first, I guess Rock Band would be my first real console title, but my role in it was so junior. My first real console title as a composer will be the upcoming Salt and Sacrifice from Devour Studios. It's kind of a spiritual successor to a game called Salt and Sanctuary that came out about five years ago. Um, it's a fun kind of 2D side-scrolling Souls type game. Very hard, very dark, very gloomy music, different than what I'm, I'm usually doing. And then uh, I got another project that I'm kind of hammering out the details of now that that I think will be out by the end of the year that I'm unbelievably excited about. Can't wait to talk about that. And then, uh, yeah, and then we'll see what else happens. I'm still riding the wave of the latest Guild Wars expansion. Still very proud of that. So that's kind of what's happening at the moment. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time. This was amazing. I loved it. Thank you. I'm very grateful you would have me. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash sound pod sound b-i-z pod and that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects they'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound thanks so much and i'll see you next time